Amen. Good morning, church. You know, as we were singing that song, Make Me More Like Jesus, I thought, you know, this morning before we jump into God's Word, maybe we just take some moments and just, let's just, let's just, let's just pray. Can we do that this morning? Right where you sit, just, just every head bowed, every eye closed, maybe you walked in this morning with some burdens on your heart. Maybe you walked in this morning with some really big hurts on your heart. And so I just want to take some moments today as a church, and let's just pause, and, and let's just go to the throne of grace, and just, I'm going to give you a few moments by yourself. If you just take some moments and pray and just pour your heart out to God, if you want to come to this alt, the steps and call the altar and kneel before him, that's fine too. But let's just take some real moments and let's just pray and then I'll close some prayer. Lord, we're coming to you in this moment. And I know just with the group this size, people walking through the doors with, with hurts and burdens, anxieties, struggles, concerns. And Lord, I, I know me well enough to know that it's probably true of them that it's oftentimes those things hinder us from hearing your word clearly and apply it to our lives. So God, I just pray in this very moment that whatever baggage we brought in with us, whatever hurt we brought in with us, whatever struggles we brought in with us, whatever whatever we brought in with us, Lord, that right now we would just lay them at the feet of the cross, that we would just hand them over to you. You said, Jesus yourself, that we're to cast our cares on you for you care for you, us. And so Lord, we're going we're gonna to cast those over to you. We're going to lay those down this morning, God, because today we need ears to hear your word, your message, because today your word, Lord, is powerful. Your word is going to drive us to, to do some things in our lives that, that, are going to, that are going to shape and mold the future of our lives and our marriages and our families and our church. And, and so, Lord, we need to have a tent of ears this morning. So my prayer is that we would lay that stuff down. That for just the next few moments, we can, we can lay down those struggles and those, those, those hurts and those burdens and, and, and that, that the, the things that are distracting us this morning, Lord, that we can lay it all down this morning and that we could truly ask you to show up. Would you do that this morning, Lord? Would you just show up? Would your Holy Spirit just have free reign in this place, God? Because we know that when you show up, great things happen in the lives of people. And we ask you, we desperately ask you, would you just show up this morning, Lord? We need you in this hour. So God, just be with us. May we have ears to hear and hearts that are ready to be changed. For it's in your precious and your Holy Son's name we pray. And everybody said amen. And everybody said amen. Amen. We're glad you're here this morning. I just felt like we needed to do that this morning. You know, we've been in this series called Rebuild, and, and hopefully we've learned from the beginning that Nehemiah was commissioned to rebuild some walls, right? And he did it how many days? Anybody remember? 52 days. That's right. 52 days he rebuilt the walls. And hopefully what we've understood is this. It's not just about wall building, is it? It's been about a building of a mindset, building of their identity, building of purpose, and building a mission. I want you to hear me this morning, church. We desperately need this mindset in our lives. We need this mindset in our church. Listen, I don't know about you, but I am so excited about the historic journey that we have begun and that we are on and that we're continuing with the purchase of land and eventually building. I'm excited about that. Anybody else excited about that this morning? 
Okay, I hope you're excited. But with all that excitement that I just can see oozing out of your eyeballs, with all that excitement this morning, we must make sure that nothing, everybody say nothing, nothing calls us to lose focus on our identity in Christ, the purpose Christ has for us, and the mission he has in front of us. In fact, I would say the journey that we're on, the historic journey of buying that land and building a building are a result and a production of the mission that we have, of a purpose that we have, that we feel like if that land and with the building, we can better carry out the purpose God has for us, better carry out the mission God has for us. Let us never lose sight of our purpose and our mission, no matter what the excitement. In fact, let it be a result of the excitement that we have. And if that's the case for us as a church, we need to make sure that we're always doing what we've talked about the last few weeks, that we're realigning our heart with God's, that we are responding to the opportunities that God provides for us, that we are reinforcing, refocusing, and renewing our commitment to the purpose and to the mission that Christ has for us. Now, if you've forgotten this, here, what's the purpose? To be salt and light. What's the mission? Go make disciples. We live in a broken world. Amen? Okay, not very convinced of that. Do we live in a broken world? Amen? Amen. You can't turn on the news. I was talking to some guys outside. We live in a fallen, a broken, and a dark world. And if there was ever a moment that the world needs the light of Christ in some people to show up and to show out, it's right now. We have a world that needs to see Jesus in some Christians instead of just talking about being a Christian. And if we're going to do that, we've got to realign ourselves. We've got to refocus ourselves. And we've got to do all those things so that we can be driven by the purpose and the mission that Christ has for us. And today we're going to talk about a new word, and it's probably all our least favorite word. See, I believe this love in my heart. If we are going to build this mindset of our identity in Christ, our mission and our purpose in Christ, if we're going to build that, we must have a heart willing to repent. Here's what I mean. A heart that's willing to admit when we've strayed from God's purpose in our life. A heart that's willing to admit when we've rebelled against the mission God has for us. When we think about the mission of God, here's what many of you may think this morning. Well, the mission to go make disciples, isn't that why we pay the pastor? Right? Isn't that what this staff is for? Well, I've got really good news for all of you this morning. You ready? That's not what you paid me for. My job is to equip the saints to the work of the kingdom. It is all of our jobs as born-again believers to be on mission for Christ. It's all of our jobs to go out there and to make disciples, to build relationships, let the light of Christ shine through us, and lead them to a place where they know who Jesus is and that Jesus might change their heart. It's our job to be on mission, all of us, right? And so if we're going to do that, we've got to make sure that we have a heart that is willing to repent. Now, I want to say this to you, and I hope you write this down. It won't be on the screen, but true repentance includes two things. True repentance includes confession and commitment. Confession and commitment. You don't have repentance without both of those. There's got to be confession, and we're going to see that today like maybe never before, and commitment. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 9, if you have your Bibles there, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to see a beautiful picture of uh, this confession and a beautiful picture of commitment. And as we look at Nehemiah chapter 9, there's three things I want us to understand this morning. The first one is, I want us to look at what are the characteristics of true confession, what is the nature of our confession, and where does confession lead us? What path does it take us down? So if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. The first question I want us to look at, what are the characteristics of true confession? What are the characteristics? The first one is found in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, on the 24th day of this month, 
The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with the earth on their heads. Now, you say, Doug, why, where do I get the characteristic in that? Listen, the first characteristic of true repentance is brokenness before God. Here the, now, remember the story of the Israelites, right? Remember that when a, a chapter ago in chapter 8, that they were, after the book of the law was read, the first five books of the Old Testament were begin, being read by, by Ezra the priest. You remember what they did? They wept. You remember that? They were weeping over it. They were broken over the sin, and then they're like, wait a minute. This is not a day of sorrow. This is a day of joy. Stop your weeping. Turn it to joy. And they did that. So they celebrated the Feast of Booths. And guess what they did after they celebrated the Feast of Booths? They went right back to weeping. Why? Because there was something about the Israelites that they understood the brokenness of their own heart. They understood that they had rebelled against God. And so they confessed not only their sins, as we'll see in a minute, but the sins of their fathers. They knew that they had blown it before God. And we find them here in chapter 9. It says they're fasting. Well, we know what fasting is, right? It's when you abstain from food or water because you're truly, as you feel those hunger pains, as you feel that thirst, you stop and you do what? What do you do? You pray. Not a trick question. We pray, right? Why? Because we're trying to seek God. And so when I feel the hunger for food or the thirst for water, it triggers me to stop and to pray and to seek God's guidance. So they're fasting here. But you notice what they have on? Very fashionable. You know what it was? What was it? What did they have on? Sackcloth. Nobody's sporting sackcloth this morning, are you? Right? I don't know. They had sackcloth. And then literally they put the dirt of the earth, which is ashes, on their head. So here are these group of people that have been weeping for days, then they celebrated, and now they're back to weeping, and they have sackcloth on and ashes on their head. Now, this is just a picture, and they're just, they're just admitting to themselves and to everyone else the soiledness of their heart, that their heart has been sold with sin, that their heart has been broken, their heart has been rebellious. And so the, 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 the effort of putting on sackcloth and ashes as them reminding everybody there that day that we are sinful, that our hearts are sinful. And I've said this before, but I want to say it again. You know when people talk about making decisions and they say, follow your heart. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes they'll call it their gut, you know, follow your gut. Well, what we know is this. The heart is what? The heart is deceitful and wicked. Don't follow your heart. Do what is right, right? And so when they put this stuff on, it's literally a picture of how their hearts have been soiled by sin. But I also want you to notice this. There's no facades here. Nobody's faking it. There is total humility when you, listen, if you walked in and you had sackcloth on and you put ashes on your head and you were weeping over your sin, while we might think you're a little bit weird, at the end of the day, if we understood the biblical imagery of that, there there would be no facades there. That is total humility for somebody to put sackcloth on and ashes on the head and acknowledge that I am wretched. I mean, that's total humility. And so listen, here's the point. When these folks put on sackcloth and ashes, they weren't just saying, hey, we're sorry for what we've done. They weren't just saying, hey, we regret what we've done. They were saying, we are broken before holy God over what we've done. We understand the weight and the magnitude of the sin that's been in our lives. We get that. And we want everybody else to get that too. And so there's a brokenness for God. Listen, true confession, one of the characteristics of true confession that leads us to repentance, listen, church, is when we are broken before holy God. I don't know about you, but I want to pause here for a minute because I want you to hear Doug's heart this morning because this passage is for me. I needed this this week. 
Listen, for me, here's what I know. Too many times I look at my sin and I just declare my, my, how sorry I am, the regret I have for doing what I've done. But how many times am I really broken? I mean like broken, broken. Like beside myself broken. And what about all of us? See, what we see in the passage is a brokenness over their sin. Brokenness over what they've done. Should we, should we be broken over the sin that's in our life? Come on, should we be broken? Sure we should, but how often are we broken? You know, God, I'm sorry I did that. God, I hate that I did. No, 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 no. God, I'm broken because I've sinned against a holy God, a sovereign God, and God, I'm wretched and I'm pitiful, and I can't believe that I rebelled against you. There needs to be a brokenness in us. See, true confession, one of the characteristics of true confession is going to be brokenness before God. Here's a second characteristic found in verse 2 and 3. It says this, And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confessions and they worshiped their God. Listen, here's the second characteristic. There has to be honesty about our sinfulness. There's to be honesty. See, in this moment, did Israel point the finger at anybody else? Come on, did Israel point the finger at anybody else? You know, it was my wife that made me do it. They say that? It was my husband that made me do that. It was the priest that made me. No, no, no. In this moment, Israel came together, and listen to me, this is a hard thing to think about. They took responsibility for their sin. They stood after reading the book of the law, and they confessed it. Not only their sins, but their sins of their fathers. I mean, they took responsibility for how they had rebelled against God, and they didn't blame anybody else. Let's just be real honest, because we're in church this morning. How many of you struggle sometimes wanting to blame other people for your sinfulness? Aren't we all that way? Doesn't that go back to the garden, doesn't it? Right, that mindset? And I'm just telling you, there's been times in my life, probably about seven, eight years ago, I was counseling this couple, and this couple, there was marriage counseling, and they came in, and I mean, it was, it, was, it was maybe the most bizarre marriage counseling session I've ever been in, because they sat down, and she looks at me, I said, I called her by name, and I said, you know what, what, you know what let's just start this out, what are you feeling this, 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 this afternoon? And she goes, I don't think I love him anymore. That's probably not the best way to start a counseling session, Right? And I looked at him hoping for a little bit of, you know, latitude here, or, you know, some grace or maybe some encouragement thoughts. And I go, well, how do you feel? He goes, I don't think I've ever left her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not a good starting point for us, right? And I began to kind of process what was going on. Okay, what's going on in your marriage? And ultimately, here's what he said. I'm not blaming all men, but this is what he said, because I remember it, and it was on him. He's like, you know what? He said, I'm struggling with some things in my life, so I'm looking at some things that I shouldn't be looking at, and the reason I'm looking at I know I shouldn't do it, but she doesn't want to have anything to do with me. There's no intimacy in our marriage. Now, is he taking responsibility for his sin? Some of you go, well, he acknowledged he shouldn't be looking at what he's looking at, and I would say to you, he's taking zero responsibility, because at the end of the day, he's still blaming who? Her. And when Israel came together, there was no blaming anybody else. There was no pointing the finger. They were before God, and they were broken before God, and they were honest about their sinfulness. Church, listen to me. We've got to quit blaming other people for our own sinfulness. Nobody made you do what you did. You made a choice to do it. You made a choice to think it. You made a choice to say it. You made a choice. And if we're going to have confession that's going to lead us to repentance, we have to take responsibility for what we do, what we say, 
what we think, and ultimately what we do. We have to take responsibility for that. And that's what they did. And as they took responsibility, what do they do after that? It says, they confessed and they worshiped. You know, I don't know about you, and, I, and I'm going to ask, and you know, I don't want you to do this this morning with me or anything, but there's something cleansing about confession, isn't there? There is something that's so purifying that when I get before God and I am broken over my sin and I take responsibility for my sin, there is something that is so freeing, so liberating, and so confessing that the result of that in my heart is I just want to worship God. Thank you for caring for me. Thank you for being mindful for me. Thank you for not forsaking me. Thank you for not writing me off, God. Thank you for hearing me and restoring me and doing what you do in my life. There's something very cleansing about that, and Israel experienced that. See, one of the, two of the characteristics that we have to have if there's going to be true confession in our heart is we have to have a brokenness before God, and we have to have an honesty about our sin. Your kid's bad behavior did not make you say that. Your spouse's behavior did not make you do that. Your co-worker's apathy toward their job didn't make you think what you thought. You did it. And we have to take responsibility for it. If you believe that, say amen this morning. Amen. amen. Now, the second thing I want you to notice with me this morning is this, is that, is that the, the nature of our confessions, the nature of our confessions, and the nature of our confessions really should be two things. First of all, the nature of our confessions should be who God is. Now you say, well, that's interesting. If you're talking about confession, it shouldn't be about me and my sinfulness. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But it should be about who God is. In fact, I think it's so important that when we confess, when we are in a, in a moment of repentance, that we pause and we confess who God is. Because in thinking about who God is, it reminds me of who I've sinned against, right? I have sinned against the creator of the universe. I've sinned against the one who loves me so much that he sent his son to die for me. And so we need to confess who God is, and that's exactly what Israel does. Look with me in verse 6 and 7. Listen to what they say. They have a lot of things they say about God. They say, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, and God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Now, here's what he says. Listen to who they say God is. You ready? You're the one true God. Did you pick up on that? They said, you are the Lord, you alone. You know what they're saying? God, you're unique. There is no one like you. There is no other God. You are the one God. You are the one true God. And then look what else they say. They say that you are creator. You have made the heavens and everything in them. You've made the seas and everything. And what are they saying? That you are creator and we are your creation and nothing exists beyond you. Think about that. Nothing exists beyond the creation and the creating hands of God the Father. Nothing. Nothing exists beyond that. And then they say, Lord, you are not only one true God, not only your creator, but God, you are sovereign. Two words there. He says, you, Lord, chose and brought Abram out of Ur. You know what they're saying? That word chose and brought means this, is that God had a plan and God orchestrated everything to carry out that plan. Everything. In fact, one of the things I enjoy the most is when I study the Old Testament leading into the New Testament, and you realize there's like 400 years between the Old and New of what we would call silence there. 
And I would tell you this, that that really wasn't a season of God being ultimately silent. He wasn't speaking to his people, but it's 400 years that God is still orchestrating. God orchestrated politics. God orchestrated culture. God orchestrated belief system. God orchestrated the, the, the people that call themselves the Israelites, the Jewish people. And he orchestrated everything to lead up to that one divine moment when a baby was born in Bethlehem. While there may have been silence of God speaking, God was not silently not doing anything. He was orchestrating. And they say, Lord, knowing to believe that you're the one true God, but you're creator and you are sovereign. You chose Abram. You brought Abram. You had a plan and you carried it out. You remember a few weeks ago I said this, that if God is in it, you can't stop it. And if he's not in it, you can't make it happen. That's exactly what they experienced. Exactly what they experienced. And then they go on and continue to talk about God and who he is. And, and listen to verse 8, the very end of verse 8. He says this, and you have kept your promises for you are what? What's that word say? You are righteous. And you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry and the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire you led them at night to light. For them, the way in which they should go. Now listen, here's what they say. That's a lot of there, but let me just unpack it. Here's what they say. First of all, you're righteous. Did you pick up on that? You are righteous, God. Now what does that mean? That means that God always does what is right. Now let me, let me translate that a little bit. Not right in Doug's eyes. Right in the perfect, holy, just God's eyes. He always does what's right. He says, you're just. Then they say, listen, you're also, you're mindful of us. Did you pick up on what he said? You saw their affliction and you heard their cry. That God is always mindful of us. That God is never absent from us. That, that he is mindful of us. That God is ultimately attentive to the hurts and needs. Listen, some of you this morning you were the ones I was talking about a while ago. You came in hurting. You came in struggling this morning. Listen, God is attentive to your needs. He hears your cries. He sees your afflictions. And he is attentive. And listen, attentiveness means he will meet your needs. I love it when David said it this way, who am I that you'd be mindful of me? I don't know about you, but when I think about the bigness of God, usually what follows with that is me thinking about the insignificance of Doug. Anybody else struggle with that? But here's what I know. I'm not insignificant. You are not insignificant. And God is keenly aware of who we are. God is keenly attentive to all of our needs, all of our struggles, all of our hurts. He knows all of it. He is mindful of us, and they acknowledge that. Then they acknowledge this. Not only is he mindful, but he is redeemer, a rescuer. He says, you performed, you divided, you cast, and you led. I mean, all these words are in this verses here that you performed, you divided, you cast, and you led. And what they're saying is, God, that at every turn, guess who rescued Israel? At every turn, who rescued Israel? God did. At every turn, when they were facing the Red Sea, what did God do? He divided the waters. When they were in Egypt, what did God do? He performed miracles. When they got to a desert and they were desert or hot, what did God do? He provided a cloud by day. And a fire by night. What? Leading them to the place 
where you want to be. In other words, they're saying, listen, God, at every turn, you've rescued us. Now, hear me on this, church. At every turn, God has provided for you. At every turn, God has been there with you. He's not been absent. He's not forsaken you. And he is rescuing us over and over and over and over again. If you believe that, say amen this morning. But he's your rescuer. And they said, listen, God, we understand that you are a redeemer. And then they say this, that he is ultimately our provider. Look at me in verse 15. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. And you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go possess the land that they have sworn to give unto them. In other words, not only you righteous, not only you mindful, not only you redeemer, but you are provider. You know my needs. Even, even before I know them, and you always meet them. Did you know that about God? He knows your needs this morning. In fact, he knows needs that you won't know about until 2022. He already knows them. And he's already orchestrating. And he's already making a plan to meet the needs that you and I are going to have. They said, listen, God, when we come before you, one of the, the nature of their, of their confession, first and foremost, was the nature was who God is. God is the one true God. He is creator. He is sovereign overall. He is righteous. He is mindful. He's our rescuer, and he is our provider. Man, what a great declaration for Israel to, to let out there. And then they come to the second part of the nature of their confession, which is not who God is, but who we are. Now listen to this. Look what they say about who we are. Look at me in verse 16. Skip down to verse 16. And they say this. But they, talking about themselves and each other, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiff, stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. In other words, who are we? We are rebellious. That word, they acted presumptuously, means they acted arrogantly. And you know what that means? It means they acted with a sense of entitlement. God, you owe me. Is that a word that we understand in our culture today, is that word entitlement? Come on, do we understand that word? Now, some of us want to look at the millennial generation and go, yeah, that's a bunch of entitled people. Listen, I would say we all feel entitled at times. We all feel like somebody owes us something. And I just want to say this to you. Nobody owes you anything. And the people of God acted presumptuously. They thought that God owed them. They acted arrogantly. They thought because God was on their side that God somehow owed them something. And God didn't owe them anything. God had rescued them out of his grace, not his obligation. Right? God didn't owe them anything. And so these people, they were, they were rebellious. We were rebellious. And it says not only were they presumptuous, they were stiff-necked. You know what that means? They were stubborn. Anybody stubborn in the room? Yeah. <laughs> I know you're stubborn, right? You know what that means? It's like that old song, we shall, we shall not be moved, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's, that's kind of the mindset, that I'm in this place where I'm not going to be moved by anything. God, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to do my thing, my way, on my time. I hear you, Lord. I know what you want, but at the end of the day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to yield to an audience of one, and it's going to be me. So who are we? We're rebellious too. Sometimes we act presumptuously, arrogantly, entitled. Sometimes we are stiff-necked, stubborn, and unmoving. And then he says also, look what else they say about themselves. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed to them leaders return to the slavery in Egypt. But you are the God ready to forgive 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. What does it say about who we are? He says we are disobedient. That the people of Israel intentionally decided not to obey God. They intentionally decided they were not going to follow the statutes and the commands that God has them. Despite the fact that God is forgiving. Despite the fact that God is gracious and merciful. Despite the fact that God in his steadfast love never forsook them. Despite all of that, he says, listen, here's who we are. We are rebellious and we are disobedient. We are disobedient. We choose to live life the way we want to live, and we know maybe what God's word says, and we intentionally go, I'm not going to do that. Now, have you ever had one of your kids do that to you when they were little? Come on, any parents ever had one of your kids, you told them something to do, and they looked you in the eyes going, I'm not going to do that. And then you decided spanking for distance was more important now than for effect, right? Kids look at you and go, I'm just going to do that. Well, listen, sometimes we do that with God. Hey, God, I know what you say here. I know what you say about how to live my life, how to treat others. I, listen, here's a good one. I know what you say about confronting someone who's offended me, but at the end of the day, I don't want to do that. I know they've offended me. I know they've hurt me. And I know what Matthew 18 says, that I'm supposed to go to them and then take somebody with me and then take them before the church. I know that, but I don't want to do that. And I'm not going to do that. I'd rather simmer in bitterness than do biblically what you've told me to do. And that's where some of us live. We've just intentionally, now, maybe not the big stuff like in your mind of, okay, not, not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to disobey. I am going to go to church. I am going to read my Bible. But w- listen, there's part of us that when we look at the, the totality of Scripture, there's some things that we know we should be doing that we look at it and go, I'm just not going to do it. Now, you may not say that with your mouth, but you're saying it with your actions or lack thereof, right? And so these people said, listen, we were disobedient. And look what they say about verse 18 and 19. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them and the way they did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, the way by which they should go. In other words, he says, listen, we are not only rebellious and disobedient, we're idolaters. We choose to put other things ahead of our relationship with the Lord. And here's what, here's what he's saying. Not only did they have divided loyalties, they had shifted loyalties. It wasn't about Yahweh. It was about a golden calf. Did you pick up on that? And if you go back to Exodus, you even read the story. They actually even said that it was the golden calf that brought them out of Egypt, right? They gave the golden calf, this inanimate object, they gave it credit for something that a living God had done for them. And so listen, the reality is what he's saying is, listen, we are idolaters. Not only do we have divided loyalties, we oftentimes have shifted loyalties. Yet even in the face of our idolatry, you've still not abandoned us. You've still not forsaken us. Now, I want you to hear me on this one, church, because this is a big deal. There's some of us in our life, you don't have a little baby Buddha up in your house that you worship. But for some of us, we put other things ahead of our relationship with Christ. Well, Doug, you don't understand I have to do that. That had to be done. That was a necessity. You're right, I don't. And neither, more importantly, neither does God. Because if there's anything on the throne of your life besides him, that's idolatry. If your kids are on the throne of your life over your relationship with Christ, your kids have become your idols. Ouch, that one's a tough one, isn't it? 
Especially when your kids are little, like my, my oldest son has a little Henry, and I'm so excited in April, I get to go see Henry, and I called him, we called yesterday, and he's like, you know, Henry was sleeping like seven, eight hours a day, like three months old, and, or three hours, seven, eight hours a night, and, and three months old, and so it was all great, and I, I called him last night, and I said, how's it going? He's like, well, Henry's not sleeping, we're rocking him the entire night, because we can't swaddle him anymore because he rolls over, so we have to hold him the entire night. So right now, their world is revolving around little baby, baby intelligent, manipulating Henry right now, right? Because we all know they understand. And for young parents, listen, for young parents, they're going to fight the temptation of little Henry taking precedent in their life over the relationship with Christ. If you're married, you're going to fight the temptation of putting your spouse over your relationship with Christ. In the economy of God, God is always first. Amen? He's always first. And the Bible tells us, Scripture tells us that God is a jealous God, and he doesn't want anything else ahead of him. So he says, listen, we are idolaters, and sometimes we, we, we stray, and we don't we divide our loyalties, but we shift them, but yet God did not forsake them. And the last thing they say about him is this. Look at verse 26 and 27. Skip down. Here's one of the last things they say. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your laws behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. They, therefore, you gave them into the hands of your enemies who made them suffer. And the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. In other words, here's who Israel was. You ready? They were rebellious disobedient, idolaters, who at the end of the day, they were just wicked. They were just wicked. And if you don't believe me, you can go back to the book of Judges, and we talked about this in my Old Testament class, is that Israel struggled with what I call the cycle of sin. And here's what I mean by the cycle of sin. You might want to write this down, because we all wrestle with this. The first one is, we find a place where we are resting with God, that we are living in tune with God. We are resting with Him. And then we rebel against God. And then God brings retribution, meaning discipline, to our lives and then through retribution, there is repentance on our part. Oh, God, I'm broken over what I've done. And then there's restoration. And it's exactly what Israel wrestled with here. That at the end of the day, through all their history, here's what they say about themselves. We wrestle with the cycle of sin. We wrestle with being wicked. With all that you've done for us, God, here's what we did. We killed your prophets. And of all that you've done for us, God, we rebelled against your ways. Out of all you've done for us, God, we put other idols ahead of you. So when we think about the nature of our confession, listen, it needs to be about who God is, but also who we are. Can we be honest this morning and say this? Are we too sometimes disobedient? Are we rebellious? Are we idolaters? Are we wicked sometimes? Sure we are. Now, I know some of you are thinking, okay, Doug, where is the grace in what you're saying this morning? Well, listen, when I truly understand who I am, when I understand biblically who I am, that makes God's grace that much sweeter, doesn't it? When I understand how wretched I can be and the wickedness of honor, doesn't that make God's grace that much bigger in my life? That way I don't take God's grace for granted. I don't chalk it up to, well, you know, you know God just kind of loves me a little bit. No, no, no. When I think about who I am and all that I've done, how I've rebelled, how I've disobeyed, how I've had other idols before him, how there's wickedness in my heart, it reminds me that I don't deserve his grace, but he gives it to me anyway. And you know what that compels me to do? Worship. And praise the one who had no reason to show me grace, who had ever reason to forsake me, but he did show me grace, and he's never left me. 
And that's exactly what Israel's doing. They've come to this place where they're the characteristics of their confession, and now you see the nature of their confession, which was who was God and who they were. And then here's the last thing I want us to look at quickly, and it's this. Where does that kind of confession lead us? Now, I don't have time to read it because time's run out, but in verses 32 through 36, you can read it later, it basically recaps everything we've talked about. They walk through the same scenario of everything we said about how they rebelled, how God has been faithful, how God's loved them. But look at verse 38. This one verse, verse 38, I want you to notice this. Here's the conclusion of this chapter 9 and the conclusion of this moment for Israel. Because of all of this, in other words, everything we've talked about, we make a firm covenant in writing. On a sealed document are the names of the princes, our Levites, and our priests. In other words, in this moment, here's what it led to. It led to a commitment to change. They made a covenant with the Lord. And in fact, chapter 10, most of it is the people's names who were on that sealed document and people's names that were on that document. Why? Because they made a commitment to change. Listen, if we truly confess the way we've talked about confessing, it will lead us to make a commitment to change. So here's what I want us to know this morning. Repentance requires confessing, confession, and change, commitment. Confessing our brokenness before God. Confessing that our ownership of our sin. Confessing who he is and who we are, but committing to make a change. True repentance is not just confessing, it's also commitment to do what? To change. Now, for those of us that are believers in the room this morning, hear me this morning. If we are going to rebuild this mindset of who we are in Christ, our purpose, and our mission, we must have a heart that's willing to repent. True confession always leads us to repentance. We must have a heart willing to, to repent. If we don't have a heart willing to repent, to acknowledge when we strayed from his purpose, we strayed from his mission, we will never be driven by his purpose, and we will never be driven by his mission. So today, maybe what we need to do is what they did. We just need to repent. If you want to in a moment, this altar is going to be open. You can stay in your seat. It doesn't matter. But would you just take some moments with the Lord and say, you know what, Lord, today I, there's some sin in my life that I've just been sorry for, that I've just regretted. But today, Lord, there's a brokenness in me like I've never had before. God, I'm broken over how I've lived. I'm broken over what I've done. Lord, today I want to take ownership of the sin that's in my life. I blamed everybody else for it. But today I just want to be honest and say, Lord, it was, it was mine. I own it. Or maybe you're here this morning and you think too highly of yourself and today you just need to be reminded who he is and you need to confess that to him. Lord, you are the great creator. You are the great redeemer. You are my provider. You are mindful. God, you are sovereign. God, you got, and you just want to declare that but also declare who you are. God, sometimes I'm rebellious. I'm wicked. God, I'm, I'm an idolater. God, I'm disobedient. And just confess that to the Lord. So that ultimately, that confession will lead us to what? Change. So this morning, I'm going to ask you, would you make those confessions, Lord, wherever you find yourself, but would you not end it with confession? Would you end it with a commitment to real change? To real change where you're going to say, God, God, I'm walking this way in my life. I've been doing these things. I confess this to you, but Lord, I want to pivot in my life, and I want to do the right thing walking towards you, and I want change, real change in my life. Would you do that this morning? And maybe some of you here today, maybe there's somebody here that, you know what, you don't know Christ as your Savior. And I would encourage you with this, the, the prayer of my heart for you is that you would surrender your life to him this morning. But you know where surrender begins? With repentance. 
saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I'm rebelling against you. But today, I believe that Jesus is down the cross, and I want to turn my life around and give my life to you. And today, you need to repent as well. And so however the Lord may lead you this morning, would you be faithful to do that? Would we be faithful to have a heart willing to repent this morning? Let's all stand together if you would. Everybody stand with me. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Let's just stand together. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for today. And God, I know for many of us, when we think about this, you know, repentance is not our favorite word, because repentance means I have to acknowledge the sinfulness of my own heart. There should be more than just a simple remorse, a simple sorry, a simple regret. There should be real brokenness in me over it. There needs to be ownership in me of my sin. God, so this is not our favorite topic, but Lord, I believe as a believer and as a part of this church, if we're going to see you do great and mighty things as you already have, we have to be a church filled full of people that are willing to have a heart to repent, that we're willing to truly confess our brokenness and ownership of our sin. We're willing to confess who you are as creator, as the one true God, as sovereign as righteous, as just, as a rescuer and provider and someone that we can run to and cling to and lean on because you're our father too. And also we need to confess, Lord, who we are. I don't want us to beat ourselves down, Lord, because in Christ we are a new creation, but we need to be reminded of our propensities in life, our propensity is to rebel against authority. Our propensity is to disobey authority. Our propensity is to live a life of wickedness and to put whatever we want on the throne of our life. That is our propensity, Lord. And can we just confess that this morning? And Lord, ultimately, our prayer is that our confession would lead to a commitment. A commitment to really change and to follow you more. God, we need this in our lives to grow. And we need this in our church to grow as well. May we be a church that's always willing to repent. And Lord, I pray for that one person that maybe doesn't know you today. Would you let them know that surrender begins with repentance? That they've walked away from you, that they are walking to an eternity apart from you. But today, if they will acknowledge Jesus as their Savior and turn their life around and give it to you, that you will save them, change them, and give them the hope of heaven in this very moment. So God, would we just give this moment to you. I don't know how you're working, how you're moving in hearts, Lord, but would we, would we be faithful to respond this morning as you lead us? God, we need you. God, we need you this hour deeply, desperately. And we just acknowledge that. For it's in your precious and your holy son's name we pray. Amen. If you need to come this morning, man, the altar's open. Nobody's going to think anything. Listen, we're all broken, amen? We're all broken. But maybe you just need to get alone. They separated from the foreigners, and they got alone, and they stood, and they confessed. Maybe you just need to get alone away from your spouse, away from people around you, and this, this altar is open. Or you can sit down right where you're at, but would you be faithful this morning to just respond however the Lord might be leading you? All right, let's, let's worship together.